So I find that uh, in my preparation for giving a message or a devotion that it's, it's just helpful for me to, um, to start where I've been in God's word. And lately I've been in the book of Hebrews. Um, I can remember reading Hebrews as a new believer and I was quite confused. I, uh, I knew it was a New Testament book which would have placed it after the events of the life and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. So I recognized that the book talked a lot about Christ. But there was also an apparent preoccupation with the Old Testament as well. And I never felt like I really had a good grasp uh, as to why the author seemed so fixated on speaking of Christ but he insisted on using so many Old Testament references as well. So my intention is to actually spend the next two weeks in this great book of Hebrews. Now my prayer is by doing so that we may understand more about the truths found in this book. And I have prayed that through the Holy Spirit, uh, God will help us all to see how to better live out the truths found in this book. Now, as I've said before, our practice flows out of our doctrine. Practice flows out of our doctrine. It's a pattern we see in Scripture of of God. God desires to inform us about the facts about himself, and then he guides us as to how to apply these in our lives, and the book of Hebrews is no different. So this week, what I desire to do is I desire to to give us kind of a broad brush overview of the book of Hebrews, and Lord willing, next week, uh, we'll look closer at chapter 12, which deals with how the believer should view trials and suffering in their life in light of the doctrines that are developed earlier in the book. So it would be a good idea to read Hebrews this week if you could. It takes about an hour, 13 chapters, um, just to kind of give a better anchoring for what we're going to look at these next two weeks. So our main text today is found in Hebrews 4. Now the theme of Jesus being our perfect high priest, that's a theme that's recurring in the book of Hebrews. I'm going to begin by putting the text before us But before we look at today's text, uh, I want to just devote some time to giving that overview of the book in in an effort to better understand what it means when it says Jesus is our high priest or perfect high priest. So if I could put a key theme in front of you for, uh, for today, it would be this. A Christian's confidence comes from Jesus being our perfect high priest. Again, a Christian's confidence comes from Jesus Christ being our perfect high priest. So let's read uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. So the author writes, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we're going to look at three main points today. First being an overview of the book of Hebrews. A second being Jesus as our perfect high priest. And then our third point, we're just going to uh, draw some application uh, out of what we talk about. So point number one, an overview of Hebrews. Now, uh, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Author remains unknown to us. Some have speculated as to who wrote it. Bottom line is we don't know. But we do know that the Holy Spirit is the author of all Scripture. As it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture 
is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we do know that the author, and by implication the recipients, display an intimate knowledge of the Jewish Levitical system. That is to say, the Old Testament system of uh, repeated sacrifices, repeated animal sacrifices, I should say, instituted by God at Mount Sinai as a means of covering the sins of God's chosen people, the Israelites. Now, the book gives us some indication as to the date when it was written, although we can't be absolutely certain. Chapter 13, verse 23 of Hebrews refers to Timothy as still being alive, and historians place his death around 97 A.D., so we know it can't be any later than that. And there's also no evidence in the book that Jerusalem or the temple, which was the, the center of Jewish life, was, was destroyed. That occurred in A.D. 70 by the Romans. So Hebrews was probably written more toward the time when Jerusalem was destroyed, I'll say. Let's call it about 65, so maybe 30 years or so after the crucifixion of Christ. Now what we have in the book of Hebrews is the author intending to paint a picture of us, or to us, of a bridge, or a connecting line, if you will, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that connecting line is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So in a graphic way, God displayed his hatred of sin by requiring innocent animals to be slaughtered as a payment for the sins of the people. They were sacrificed as what we call a propitiation. Now by propitiation... What I mean is that those animal sacrifices were the God-ordained means of turning away God's anger, turning away God's wrath, his anger of sin as the just judgment of the sins of the people. But in the redemptive plan of God, these sacrifices were never intended to be an end in themselves. Rather, they were seen they were to be seen as a temporary picture of the one perfect sacrifice who was to come, namely Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. As we read in John 1, 29, of John the Baptist referring to Jesus by proclaiming, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So in order to understand Hebrews, We need to see Jesus Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of that which the entire history of the Jewish people revolved around. That is the Levitical sacrificial system. For instance, when I'm driving home on I-17, I see a big sign, green background, big white letters, that indicates that's the exit I take to get home. But that sign is not my home. That sign's not my house. That sign just points me to where my neighborhood is. The sign is not greater than my home. The sign points me to my home. And that's what we have here. So Hebrews is showing us that the Levitical sacrificial system was not an end in itself. Rather, the purpose was to point ahead to the ultimate fulfillment in the perfect sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ whose shed blood ushered in what we refer to as the New Covenant. Now, some of the imagery in this book, uh, it may be somewhat lost on us as 21st century believers, Gentiles at that. But nonetheless, throughout Hebrews, the author is deliberately using Jewish language to reach his intended audience uh, with the biblical truth. So then who, to whom was the book of Hebrews written? Well, there are actually three groups of people who are addressed in this book. And it's important because the author shifts throughout the book to whom he's speaking. Some are to one group, 
Sometimes he shifts his attention to, to speak to another group. Different times at different, different points at different times in this letter, the author talks to different groups. And these three groups are this. The main group are Jewish believers. Now this group consists of uh, people who have come out of Judaism and have come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we could refer to those in this group as Hebrew Christians. I think you get what I mean. But we need to remember the cultural landscape surrounding one who professed faith in Jesus Christ in the first century. So 30 years earlier, Jewish leaders crucified Jesus Christ in an effort to extinguish this new movement that posed a threat to everything they believed. Now we read about the first Christian martyr, Stephen, in Acts 6, in Acts 7, and his death actually served as a spark of hostility by those who despised this resurrected Jesus. And when fueled by the wind of the Holy Spirit, grew into an inferno of Christianity that spread across the ancient world. They stoned Stephen for following Jesus Christ. And in Acts 1, we read of the result. Acts 1 said, And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the, except the apostles. So persecution was that vehicle through which the gospel spread from Jerusalem. So, so Christians were scattered due to hostility and persecution, and they brought the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ with them. And churches were established as they went. Now, there was often a high price to pay for being a Christian. And there were unique challenges if you were a Christian coming out of Judaism. There were struggles connected to professing faith in Christ, but these Hebrew Christians that were coming out of Judaism had the additional struggle of, of leaving behind the very thing that identified them as being one of God's people. Namely, the Levitical system's legalistic effort to earn God's favor through keeping of the law. And one of the effects of persecution surely must have been a tendency to, to turn back or to revert back to the dead legalistic system whose sole intention was to point forward to the coming Messiah who at that point had already come. So in Hebrew, we find, we find urgings, urgings and exhortations for endurance and perseverance like we see in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which read of Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, so one group to whom the letter of Hebrews was written were Hebrew Christians. Another group were unbelievers who had a, uh, a, a mental understanding of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, but who had not committed their lives to him. So these people, they knew the truth, but for whatever reason, uh, perhaps a fear of persecution, or perhaps uh, just an unwillingness to make a, a clean break with, the Judea with Judaism, whatever reason, they just weren't committed to Christ. And I use the term unbelievers here deliberately because sadly we, we've all met people who can recite the gospel clearly, accurately, 
Perhaps they were raised in a Christian home and they have a mental understanding of who Christ is and what was accomplished at the cross. But when you ask some probing questions into their state of their walk with Jesus, uh, it's revealed that they, they don't have one, that they don't have that saving faith. They don't have a relationship with God through uh, faith in his risen son. And then the third group uh, to which Hebrews was written are those unbelievers who have heard the gospel and were living in a state of just full-on rejection. So this group is marked by a willful refusal to accept the good news of the gospel. It's not that they're lukewarm. They're just deny it. It's not that these unbelievers had never heard the gospel. These were those who had heard it and just refused to accept it. And as we see throughout the book of Hebrews, there are various warnings targeted to each of these three groups. And we, as we come across these warnings, we can really see the heart of the author and therefore the heart of God come through as we read these warnings. They, they, these warnings, they come to us as a plea to come to Jesus. These warnings display compassion toward those who are perishing and an urging for endurance to those who are saved yet are being challenged in their faith. I want you to hear, hear Peter's words in 2 Peter 3, 9, says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So one, of these, one such warning comes to us in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where the author writes, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And we receive another such warning in Hebrews 10, uh, verses 29 to 31, where the author writes, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It's not fearful for those who have accepted Christ. It's fearful for those who have rejected Christ. Now we know that Romans 10, Romans chapter 10, teaches us that salvation is a gift from God, and that gift is given when the Holy Spirit activates a dead heart upon hearing of the word of truth, the word of God being taught. So saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ comes in the form of a response to the power that is contained within the word of God. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I'll just say that it could be that the Lord in his goodness is calling you to respond to the gospel and repent and believe in Jesus. So one of the keys to understanding Hebrews is understanding that the author shifts 
uh, to which of these three groups he talks about and addresses throughout the book. So broadly speaking, what we find in Hebrews as a whole is a picture of Jesus Christ and the new covenant that was established by the shedding of his blood as being better than the old covenant that was marked by the blood of bulls and goats. So the author is showing us that the old covenant under the Mosaic law was insufficient and incomplete until the ultimate fulfillment of all that the old covenant represented and pointed forward to, namely the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of a perfect sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ. So all that, that that was just my introduction. All that by way of introduction. So as a backdrop, we'll spend the rest of our time this morning looking at what it means that Jesus is our perfect high priest. So let's look again at our main text for this morning, which helps us show, and I'll just draw your attention back to the, to the key theme, which is a Christian's confidence is rooted in the fact that Jesus Christ is our perfect high priest. So join me again in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, where the Holy Spirit writes, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we read in the Old Testament that at any given time, there were men from the tribe of Levi, Levitical system, Levi, the tribe of Levi who served as priests. And among the priests, there was to be one man per year who would serve as the high priest. The Jewish sacrificial system was not a uh, do-it-yourself mentality. So those myriad of of animal sacrifices, they were to be done by the priests on behalf of the people. Now these sacrifices were to be done in a prescribed manner and in a prescribed location, which would be the tabernacle or later the temple once it was built. Now, it'll help us if, if we get like a mental picture of the floor plan of the tabernacle. So we should see the floor plan in terms of, of increasingly restricted access. So here's what I mean. Okay, there was a courtyard. Now, this was by far the largest uh, area square footage-wise of the tabernacle. And it had one door. One door to which the Israelites could enter. Now, if you were in the courtyard, right, the doors behind you, you'd look forward and you'd see another door going into a smaller room that was called the holy place. Now, in front of that doorway, you'd see a large copper uh, basin, tub, so to speak, full of water called a laver. Now, it was only the priests who could enter into the holy place. An entrance would only be permitted after performing a ceremonial cleansing using the water from the laver. Now, if you were standing in the holy place, if you were a priest with a doorway at your back, in front of you, you'd see a thick curtain separating the holy place from a still smaller room called the most holy place or the Holy of Holies. Now it would be in the Holy of Holies that there would be a wooden box overlaid with gold called the Ark of the Covenant. And inside that would be the tablets of stone, 
that Moses received from God on Mount Sinai on which were written the Ten Commandments. There would also be uh, Aaron's rod that budded and an urn that contained a sampling of the manna that was used to sustain the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings. Now it was, the only, it was only the high priest who could enter the Holy of Holies. That's my point. And even then, it was, he was only allowed to enter once a year. On the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, the high priest would serve as a mediator between a holy God and sinful man. And on this day, there was an elaborate uh, ritual of of, uh, of cleansing, which symbolized or symbolized the need for mankind to be cleansed from sin. The high priest would then sacrifice a bull as a sin offering for himself and his family, since he indeed was a sinful man. And then he proceeded to sprinkle the blood, the blood of that bull on the Ark of the Covenant. Then the high priest would then sacrifice a goat because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites and then sprinkle the blood of that goat on the Ark of the Covenant. And another thing that the high priest would do on Yom Kippur would be to place his his hand on the head of of a live goat. And he would confess over that goat the sins of the Israelite. And then that goat was led out into the wilderness where it carried the sins of the people for that year. And all these things needed to be done precisely. Precisely according to God's written law. Or the punishment would be death. Instant death for the high priest. So Jesus is described as our perfect high priest. Whereas the priest under the old covenant was imperfect, as displayed by his need uh, to be washed and the need for a sacrifice to be made on his behalf, Christ has no need to be washed. As a matter of fact, it's his blood that washes our guilt away. There's no need for a sacrifice for Christ. Rather, he was our perfect sacrifice. Now we read in Mark, Luke, Mark and Luke's gospel accounts of Jesus hanging on the cross. And at the moment of his death, that thick curtain that restricted access to the Holy of Holies was literally torn in two. Now, this should not be seen as uh, figurative, like, uh, like I had a splitting headache. That's figurative language. Rather, that curtain that separated the earthly dwelling place of God, the Holy of Holies, that curtain which served to restrict access to God under the Old Covenant, only the high priest, and even then only once a year, It's torn in two. No longer there. It's done away with. So the symbolism here is that through the death of Jesus Christ, anyone who comes to God through the door of faith in his resurrected Savior now has unrestricted access through the blood of Jesus Christ. So God's prescription of how the the tabernacle and later the temple in Jerusalem was ordered, was to serve as a picture as to how to access God. And to connect the dots in our mind, the author of Hebrews is very concerned about showing the readers and us that all the elements of the old covenant sacrificial system are designed by God to be a picture of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. So the imagery in Hebrews is one of futility compared to perfection. The inadequacy 
of the sacrificial system is compared to the perfection and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So the sheer, I mean, get a picture, man. The sheer visual impact of these sacrifices and the constant need to repeat that sacrificial, to repeat those sacrifices, that sacrifice was only good up till the point where another sin was committed. All those sacrifices were designed by God to show man his sinfulness and to show man the futility of trying to earn God's favor through man's effort to keep the law. But in an act of infinite love, Christ died the same death as those old covenant animal sacrifices so we don't have to. Again, Hebrews 4, 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times, in time of need. So here the author is exalting Christ by drawing our attention to the, to the futility of having a high priest who is merely a man. The high priest was required to adhere to, to all those purification rituals and he, and he felt that oppressive level of increased restrictions as he goes from the courtyard into the holy place and then from the holy place into the holy of holies. And all the while, he was experiencing an increased awareness of his own inadequacy. So the author of Hebrews is showing us that the earthly high priest eventually had permission to pass by the dividing curtain, but only once a year. And then once his duties in there were done, he needed to get out. But Jesus, as our perfect high priest, he didn't merely pass through the curtain. Our text says he passed through the heavens. His eligibility was not established by an external system of purification and sacrifices. His eligibility was based on him being God in human flesh. You see, the best that man could do was the high priest. The best that sinful man could do to obtain access to God was, was to go through a, a, a polished up version of a broken vessel. But as imperfect as the high priest was in any given year, he did play an essential role because he stood in the gap as a mediator between God and man. So in God's plan, sinful man always needed to have a mediator in order to access God. God is described as being holy or separate from fallen man. And we are separated because of our sin. Now it's more than the fact that God doesn't like sin. His holiness makes it so that he can't even be in the presence of sin. That's why a mediator is needed because someone needs to stand in the gap between a holy God and fallen man and that was the job of the high priest. But since the old covenant high priests were sinners themselves, it was considered imperfect and it was considered inadequate. It's the best they could do. But you see, the high priest could only identify with one end of the equation, the fallen sinner end. 
It was being able to be identified with the holy God and that he was never able to do perfectly. In order for a mediator to be a truly perfect mediator, he needs to be able to identify perfectly with both sides. And the perfect mediator or the perfect high priest needed to be truly man, needed to be truly God in order to perfectly stand in the gap as a mediator. So we see the author using the phrase, let us hold fast our confession. There's a picture there of us gripping hard onto something as if our life depends on it. But I can grasp a a fistful of sand if I'm in the ocean, hand underwater, and that sand's going to get... It's kind of like wafted away, you know. I can hold on to it tight, but it's not going to last. Why? Because the very thing I'm holding on to is not dependable. So the idea of holding fast our confession, it does involve us exerting effort to hold on. But more than that, it refers to the reliability of the thing onto which we are laying hold. And that is why Jesus Christ is described as our perfect high priest. We hold on to him, we are indeed in good hands. Okay, again, we need to remember who this letter of Hebrews was written to. These are believing Christians who are coming out of Judaism and who are facing sometimes tremendous uh, persecution and trials. And with these trials would also come, inevitably, a temptation to go back to what they knew in the old legalistic sacrificial system. And in, in an even broader sense, these trials would come with other forms of temptations as well. But the idea here is to remind these Christians that they have a perfect mediator who can relate to the very temptations that they were facing because Christ was tempted too. Now we read in Matthew and Mark and Luke's gospel the account of Jesus getting baptized and then immediately being led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit for 40 days. And the indication is that the underlying reason for this was in order to be tempted by Satan. Jesus needed to feel what it was like to be weak from fasting and run through the the gauntlet of temptation and emerge sinless on the other side. So rest assured, our great high priest knows our temptation. And his victory gives us the assurance that when we look to Jesus in the hour of our temptation, that we are crying out to a mediator that knows our weaknesses and he is worthy. He's worthy because he was victorious. Again, verse 16 of Hebrews 4, the author is, is, uh, is using terminology that the Jew would understand as he calls on these Jewish Christians to, uh, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's a sense that the high priest did what nobody else could, which was to approach God. Now, under the old covenant, those other than the high priest, they were not allowed to approach God. They went through the high priest to do it. But now, with no curtain and no shield to prevent access to God, we are allowed to be bold in our approach to the throne of grace for those who know Jesus. Our perfect high priest, Jesus Christ, has removed our sin, that sin which prevented us from having access. But now we, we as created beings, we still need to have that uh, holy reverence toward our creator. 
It's not like, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend type thing. But the point is that we now have permission to confidently draw near to God. Our great high priest has been where we are when we find ourselves in times of need. There was no confidence under the old covenant because access to God was conditional. There was limited approachability to God. The Levitical system, it was, it was exhausting. It was an exhaustive repetition that could never gain the confident access to God that we have under the new covenant when we trust in the shed blood of our perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. So the author is, is zeroing in on the one figure under the old system, the high priest, who served as a mediator that played the essential role for the Jews. As Jesus is pictured as our perfect high priest, that does have implications as to how we live out our lives as Christians through faith and trust. And one of those implications is how Christians should view trials and suffering in their life in view of the truth that Jesus is our great high priest. Lord willing, we're going to look at that subject next week in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. So that brings us to our third point, which would be, let's just draw out a few points of application uh, from our overview of the book of Hebrews. So point three, application. First application is trust Jesus. He really is trustworthy. When we cry out to Jesus in our hour of need, we are calling out to God in human flesh who has endured temptation and remains steadfast. We're not calling on someone who has no idea what we're feeling. We're calling on a, the God of the universe for the strength to endure because he's been there. Now, we don't have a blank check when we pray and therefore expect him to just do anything we ask. But we can approach God confidently. Now, the need for a mediator to act as a bridge between us and God, that need still exists as it did in the Old Testament. But as we think about the, the tabernacle floor plan, we'd all still be stuck in the courtyard, able to advance no farther. But God has provided us with a perfect mediator in Christ through whom we are allowed to freely access God when we trust in Christ and his shed blood for that free access. Now, I know that we are prone to lean on our own good works to secure that access. I know I, I have legalistic tendencies, right? I see my own joy rise or fall in accordance with how well I'm doing fighting against sin. Have a good spell, joy is high. Fall to temptation, that's me trying to earn my salvation. That's not the gospel. That's based on a false legalistic system that seems to be just ingrained in us. And when I fall into a mindset of leaning on my own good works to gain access to God, I'm not trusting in Christ, I'm trusting in myself. So first point of application would just be trust Jesus. The second would be make a clean break. Now perhaps none of us here um, have come to Christ out of Judaism, like the recipients of this letter, but rest assured, we do have dark corners in our hearts where 
we desire to, to import some legalistic tendencies in our effort to earn God's favor. Now, these Jewish Christians, as a result of trials and persecutions, they were tempted to, to go back to that Levitical system that marked the past. I can relate to that. I can relate to, to falling back on my own legalistic uh, tendencies when my trust in the gospel is challenged through trials, persecutions. I, should, I shouldn't even say that. I haven't been persecuted for my faith. But I have gone through trials. And when I say make a clean break, I'm referring to putting, putting behind us anything that represents a false system of salvation. Anything that doesn't rely completely on the work of Jesus Christ. And we have a tendency to, to smuggle in good works by thinking that our salvation relies on Christ's accomplishments as well as my own contributions. Gospel, it just sounds too good to be true. It just sounds too simple to be true, but read Mark 1.15 where Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus says repent and believe the gospel. The work has been done in Christ. There is a debt for sin that we all have that each of us could spend a lifetime of good works in an effort to erase and we'd be no closer to eliminating it at the end of that exhausting journey than we would be at the beginning. So I would encourage you to prayerfully ask the Lord to help you identify prideful areas of self-righteousness in your life that, have actually, that actually served to deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it would be a good discipline for us to utilize the rest of the body of Christ in this effort. Our fellow church members should be seen as a useful tool in the hand of God to help us identify these areas of legalism that we may not see or we may be unwilling to see. Let's put it that way. So second point of application would be make a clean break. And the third, what group are you in? Remember, there's three groups in view in this book, right? First group is those who are saved. They've come to trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ as an adequate and acceptable sacrifice in the eyes of God. Now they might need a reminder, they might need some encouragement to not go back to the old system, but they're saved. And the second group are those who are intellectually uh, convinced. They're convinced of the truths of the gospel in their mind, but there has not been a life commitment. They know in their minds that their sins have caused a broken relationship with God. There's a, there's a mental assent to the truth that Jesus saves through faith in him but it pretty much just stays there. There's no life commitment. It's like James says in James 1, 23 and 24, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he looks like or what he was like. And the third group are those who have heard the word of truth the gospel, and have turned their backs on it. They're not among those who have never heard. They've heard and rejected. And there are stern warnings against this in the book of Hebrews. Friends, if anyone finds themselves in either of these second two groups, it does not mean that you're not going to be held accountable for that rejection. Hebrews 9.27 says this, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Friends, there is no relative truth that comes into play here. 
as in, well, well, you know, you say that's going to happen, but I, I think differently. I think this is going to happen. I'm here to tell you that the Bible teaches that the same God who judged the world of sin by flooding the entire globe as an act of judgment will once again, not with water, but once again judge the world on the basis of who has accepted the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ and who has rejected him. So let me just conclude by reading Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. The author writes, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So in summary, we see that the book of Hebrews describes Jesus Christ as our perfect high priest. That is that Christ is the perfect fulfillment of everything in the Old Covenant, everything in the Old Covenant sacrificial system that was designed by God to point forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And since Jesus is the perfect mediator between sinful man and a holy God, friends, we have bold confidence to approach God through faith in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we ask, I ask, Lord, that these things, they don't just come across as information. But Father, I pray that we as your people may, may just grab hold of the reality of what you've accomplished in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the confidence that we have that we are praying right now to a mediator who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, you've been there. You are a perfect mediator. And Father, if there's any here today who are unsaved, who fall into those second two categories, I pray that you may open hearts through the power of your spirit to see the glory of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.